continuing in our sermon series on Journey to Jerusalem, and I'm jumping ahead six chapters. So uh, we'll be looking at chapter 19, because that's the uh, Palm Sunday passage, and I thought, well, let's just go pull that in for today instead of waiting another six weeks to find it. And uh, so we'll return back after Easter to the, uh, the series of scriptures in, in Luke. But if you, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 19 if you'd like. Have you ever had one of those days where your emotions were kind of all over the place? I don't know about you, but maybe you got in the car and uh, you thought it was going to be a quick trip and all of a sudden there's an accident and you're, and you're in there for like years on the highway and um, maybe you're afraid a little bit, a little bit angry, a little upset, maybe those uh, unbecoming thoughts towards other drivers are creeping in. Then you get to work and you find out that you won the, uh, the hockey pool and you got a couple hundred dollars extra, like, oh, hey, woohoo! Or... Um, then you get a phone call that maybe your parents said, uh, hey, you know, our family dog that you love so much, we had to put it down this week because it's just uh, time. And so like from anger to elation to sorrow, all the same day, it just seems like emotions can be all over the place. And in this passage today, we're going to see the humanity of Christ in many different ways and how he addressed the emotions. So I'm calling this one a donkey, a gate, and a rampage. <laughs> um, if you know the stories uh, in, in the, uh, the Scripture, chapter 19, he starts off uh, looking for a donkey. And so we're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to see a little bit about what he's experiencing. But I, I feel that this particular passage, he, he has the cross in mind. And if you see our, our new decorated cross, we have death and destruction on one side, and we have life and um, the river flowing out on the other side. And there's the contrast that the cross is kind of a gateway from the old way to the new way, from death to life. And so that's going to be our focus over the next, uh, the next week for sure. So Luke 19, it begins in verse 28 by saying this, after telling the story, the one about the nobleman's three servants, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. I have a feeling that Jesus had a lot on his mind. And he wasn't really into chit-chat, uh, small talk. Uh, the cross was looming. He knew what was headed. This was his last trip, really, into the Jerusalem before his arrest. And um, lots going on in his mind. And I, the weight of the world's uh, future was on his shoulders. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent his two disciples ahead. Uh, interesting, these are kind of sister towns. Bethphage was also called um, the House of Figs. And uh, Beth, Bethany was called the House of Dates. So if you were hungry, you'd go to the House of Figs. If you were single, you'd go to the House of Dates. Ha ha. <clears throat> Bethany was also the home of Simon the leper. Or I like to call him Simon the former leper. Uh, because I think Christ had healed him, given his life back. Also, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, where Jesus brought Lazarus to life. So Bethany was kind of his home away from home. He wasn't uh, near Nazareth or wasn't in the Galilee region. Now he was closest to Jerusalem. In fact, these were two of the closest towns to the city of Jerusalem, just up the hill uh, on the other side of Mount of Olives from, from Jerusalem itself. 
Verse 30, Jesus says, go to that village over there, probably Bethphage, and as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. And untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went around, found the colt, just as Jesus said. And sure enough, as they were untying this colt, the owner said, hey, uh, what's going on? <laughs> why are you untying my colt? And uh, Jesus' uh, disciples replied, the Lord has need of it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. It's actually fulfilling a scripture that had been given 400, some 400 years earlier by Zechariah in chapter 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you, righteous and victorious. He's humble, and he's riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Some scholars think that Jesus had made kind of prior arrangements with this fellow. Maybe it was a little secret code. Uh, perhaps this fellow was friends of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and, and, Jesus, and he had heard Jesus talk. And maybe he came to Jesus and said, hey, you know what? You ever need anything? Talk to me. Whatever you need uh, is yours. I, we don't know, but it just seems, it's kind of like going up to a guy that gets out of his uh, Ferrari and saying, give me your keys. The Lord has need of it. You'd think there'd be a few questions. Uh, you're taking my animal? Like, this is pretty valuable to me. But he doesn't ask any questions. Somehow, there is some kind of an understanding between this fellow and Jesus that the Lord needs it. Okay, yeah, no problem. Here you go, take it. What would you do if the Lord came to you and said, I have need of your possessions? Let's just pause for a moment. Your extra car for a missionary on furlough? Your spare room to be a safe place for a teenager? Your warm coat for a homeless person? Maybe your home to, to host a life group that needs space? Would you bristle at the inconvenience it might cause? Would you worry if you would take care of it just like you do? Would you want some type of guarantee or damage deposit, or would you freely hand over whatever the Lord puts on your heart to give? What comes to mind is Matthew twenty-five forty says, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these my brothers and sisters of mine, you've done it for me. I just know there's a lot of opportunities around us every day to give to the Lord, to provide to the Lord or his people in their time of need. What if Jesus looked at you and said, I've got need of you. I have need of your attention. I have need of your heart. I have need of your sharp mind for kingdom purposes. The skills that I put in you, it's time to call them up and to put them into practice. Would you give it? What if he says, I have need of your son or your daughter? To serve in my kingdom as a missionary or some ministry to work on in a nonprofit, would you encourage them to follow Christ's call on their life? Or would you discourage them because it can be a hard life or because they wouldn't make much money? Maybe, maybe you'd say, are you sure you want to do that? As he wrote along, verse 36, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. Seems odd, but... Maybe the Lord had need of their garments be spread out. It was a sign of respect and dignity and honor. 
a king riding through. It would have been their privilege to put down their, their garments for him to ride. It says the disciples already put their coats on the donkey so he'd have a soft saddle to ride on. In uh, Luke and Mark, they both talk, sorry, in Matthew and Mark, they both mention waving uh, palm branches and spreading the palm branches out on the road. Uh, Luke doesn't mention this. And so if we only had Luke's account, we wouldn't be calling this Palm Sunday. We'd probably be calling it Cloak Sunday or something because they, we have the cloaks being spread out. But we take all three uh, accounts of Christ's life and put them together to get a, a broader picture. That's what eyewitnesses do, right? They, both fo- they all focus on something a little bit different in the story. So together we get a better picture. So verse 37, when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, and all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wondrousful miracles they'd seen. As they rounded the crest of the hill, uh, the city would have filled the horizon with the temple shining as it stood on top of Mount Moriah. There were certain songs called Songs of Ascent, psalms that they would have sung at this time. This is what they would have done every year to, to sing songs as they went on the journey, probably the anticipation of finally getting to Jerusalem. The Passover feast uh, was, uh, was uh, to be underway. This was a, a, a ritual that they would have done, but something was different this time. They had the miracle worker with them, and they're praising God for the miracles that they'd seen him do. His reputation had gone ahead of him. Blessings to the the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, they started to sing. And this was the last few days of Christ's life, and they were praising God and saying these things. And I remember back to the very first days of Christ's life, the very first day of his birth, the angel said something similar. God, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. It's, it's, I don't know, what's the word, apropos? The, his life is bracketed by, by songs of uh, praise of God and bringing glory to God and proclaiming that there should be peace between God and men. And that's why he came, to be the reconciliation between mankind and God. But verse 39 says, some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he said, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road are going to burst into songs instead. I would have liked to see that, a rock concert, you know. <clears throat> Sorry, I just <clears throat> had to throw that in. They, uh, the, the Pharisees were not convinced of his identity as a Christ, and they were worried that they might be offending God by attributing to this man what is rightfully attributed to the Messiah himself. And Jesus I don't know. I, 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 this was the, one of the only times where he didn't say, be quiet, everyone. It's not my time. He doesn't say that because it is his time. Can you imagine the king of kings, the creator, our Lord and Savior, the one, the miracle worker that sets people free. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's riding on this uh, steed, so to speak, uh, beast of burden, carrying him in, People are proclaiming uh, amazing things. They're putting their coats on the ground. They're waving the palm branches. It's a celebration time. This one time, he could have some sense of what it would have been like to be a king. One time, 
Out of all this time, he's said, you know, keep things quiet. Don't tell anyone I raised your daughter from the dead. Don't tell anybody I cleansed you lepers. Don't tell. Now he's saying, it's true. Everything's true. I'm the one that's supposed to come. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And so he gets this very real sense of, I think for the first and maybe only time while he was on earth, of celebrating him as a king. And what did the Pharisees do? They wanted to take that away from him too. Tell your disciples to be quiet. Well, all of creation was there ready for this moment. The king was coming back to his city, the city of Jerusalem, where God's temple was, where he met his people. This was the place, Mount Moriah, where Abraham was about to offer his son as a sacrifice as well. The the temple is there. God's residence is there. And the Son of God is coming into Jerusalem. People are crying out, praising God. Shortly, the celebrating, only a few days later, would be turned to mocking. Would have been turned to spitting and slapping, scourging, whipping, mocking him by putting a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe around him, punching him in the face, saying, who do you think did that? It was short-lived, his moment of triumph, his moment of celebration, coming into the city. And at that moment, he came close to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead. Verse 41 says, he began to weep. Imagine everyone around is celebrating and praising God and singing songs, and he's crying. Many uh, believe Jesus would have entered through what they call the Golden Gate. It's one of the older gates in the city. Uh, It looks like this today. Uh, It's been boarded up for centuries. And um, each one of those panels, the left and right, have their own name. One is called Gate of Mercy. The other one is called the Gate of Repentance. This is the gate that Jesus was Coming, this is the only major gate on the, the east side of Jerusalem. The walls and opposite is this valley. With a, if you've ever been there or seen pictures, thousands and thousands of graves wanting to be right there where the Messiah is supposed to come through the side gates of Jerusalem. And then the Mount of Olives slopes up behind it. And uh, everyone is wanting to be buried there because that's the first place the Messiah is supposed to come and he comes. But let me show you something the next slide. It's interesting that The actual gates are some, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 feet lower. They're way underground that he would have gone through. Over the years, there have been destructions and recorrections and rebuilding. Um, You can see that the original walls uh, are only about four feet above the ground there, and they go down some, I don't know, I'm guessing 60, 70 feet down below, maybe more. The city of Jerusalem was totally destroyed at least two times. It was attacked 52 times. It was besieged 23 times and recaptured 44 times. It's a busy place. What we see is not what Jesus would have encountered when he came to the city of Jerusalem. The walls have been built up so much higher. New gates are put in place. But it's interesting, down below, underground, where is where he would have come through back in this first century. So as Jesus sees the city, he weeps. A crying king. While everyone else was shouting and rejoicing and singing songs of ascent, he wept. 
I see this as demonstration of his, his compassion for his people because he knew what was coming. He knew uh, in less than 40 years the very city that he was going to be entering through, not one stone, it says, would be left. The walls would be destroyed. The temple would be destroyed. Everything, the entire temple mount would be wiped clean of any kind of construction or rocks or stones, pushed over the sides. He also felt the hurt towards those who were about to face this extreme suffering and judgment of God. He likely knew also that some of the very people proclaiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, probably were going to be shout, crucify him. And a few days later, people are fickle in that regard. They go with the flow and maybe with who's paying them the most. Goes from celebration and blessed is the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, to weeping in front of the, the temple. And then, then he goes into the temple. And before he says that, verse 42, how I wish today all of you people would understand the way to peace, but now it's too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and enclose you in from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God came to you. Scholars say that many of the believers understood this as a prediction. And before the Romans came, they got out of town. They found other places to live. They, they left because they knew that Jesus, every word of his, would be coming true. Verse 45, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people, selling animals for sacrifices. And he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple would be the house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. From elation and celebration to sorrow to anger. All in the same time. This action, the, sell, the throwing people out of the temple happened, uh, they, they say, in the court of Gentiles. It's interesting that they said in the, first, in the second temple, this was not the first two temples that was built. This is the third one put together by Herod. In the first two temples, there wasn't a court of Gentiles. Uh, it was just contained to the Jewish people in Israel is what the temple was for. But because the, 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 the religion, the Jewish religion, the relationship with God was spreading through other countries, they needed to extend the, the area and create a court of people who were not Jewish, the proselytes that came in to worship the same God. So a new area was built outside the temple for the court of Gentiles. And this is where the commerce was taking place, the animals, the exchanging of money, and it was impossible to come to God and pray in the temple when you got all this going on and lots of stuff happening that they, you know, just noisy and pushing and changing money and lots of uh, languages going on at the same time. And Jesus, he's already emotional, I think, when he, you understand that he's about to head, head to the cross. All of his emotions are heightened. They're the kind of extreme, the, the, the joy, the sorrow, and now the anger comes out. The fury. Look what you've done to my temple. Look what you've done. You're preventing people from coming to my Father for, for experiencing God, uh, to bringing their prayers to Him. They can't, even, they can't even get a sense of peace. If they had to use the temple for prayer instead of commerce, perhaps they would have repented of their sin and averted the coming destruction of this very temple. He didn't want to drive people out of the temple. Jesus would prefer to drive people into the temple. Come on in. Come on in and meet your God. But, but that wasn't this case. It, just, it goes to show how far they have left 
worshiping the true God. And that the destruction that was coming, the impending wrath and doom that was set for God's people was justified. After that, verse 47, he taught daily in the temple. But leading the priests, uh, sorry, but the leading priests, the teachers and the religious law and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him. They could not, they could not think of anything because all the people, or could not, <laughs> but they could think of nothing because all the people hung on every word he said. Later on, when he was going to be dis- d- arrested after the, uh, the Lord's Supper time in the Garden of Gethsemane, he points us out. He says, I was in the temple every single day teaching. Why didn't you arrest me then? Why are you coming to me at nighttime in secret? They didn't want to be exposed for what they were doing. See, Jesus disrupted their cozy way of life. He confronted their corruption and exposed their sin. The religious leaders were so stuck on ceremonial law and religious rules that they had long since lost any kind of relationship with God. Corruption and pride and sin had infiltrated the way they governed the people. It was absurd and abhorrent how they treated the widows and the foreigners and the orphans. Three groups of people that God dearly loves. The one person who could actually explain the teaching about the kingdom of God was the king of the kingdom. In the the temple daily, he taught about everything he knew about the kingdom of God, how to be right with his father, how to live a life worthy of being called a follower of, of him. There was no one more qualified than Jesus to teach in the temple, and the priests and the leaders only thought was just get rid of him, just kill him. What did he say that was so offensive? He was teaching the truth, and they couldn't stand it. The very Messiah, the one everyone was waiting for, stood in their midst, and they could not stand him. But God's word tells us that each one of us is now, if we believe in Christ, if we've asked him into our life, we have become a temple of God. we become a place where he resides. His spirit now dwells in us. We are like the holy of holies in the, in the scriptures where presence of God resided in the Ark of the Covenant and they could find mercy there for, for re, in, in, in repentance. Now we are the receptacles of the Spirit of God. He, he abides and lives inside of us. Imagine Jesus suddenly showing up at the door to your heart to have a look around. Do you think there would be Things he would overturn or throw out the door? Would there be neglected things he needed to dust off or things he needed to straighten up in your temple? Perhaps you already have a little fire going on in the corner, a cozy chair for him to sit, some snacks on the table as you share with him and he comes to you like, come on in, I've been waiting for you. Let's sit, let's talk. Let's just commune together. Can I, can I sing a song for you? Can I, can I pray? Can we just enjoy being with one another? Read your word together. Maybe you could explain things to me as I'm reading through your scripture. I just want to know what this really means and how to apply it to my life. Maybe you'd have to give him a seat and then you'd have to rush off to get something as you were unprepared for him to stop by. I wonder if our temples are in disarray. You know, in the Old Testament, when they were rebuilding the temple, they found out that it had been turned into a storage dump. 
Lots of people just kept all their old stuff in the, in the rooms and they had to clear it all out of all the, the junk that shouldn't be in the temple. I hope the temple of your heart is well frequented and is a place where you worship your Lord and commune with him. So let's look for a moment just at the, the deity and the humanity of Christ. You see, he experienced some emotions, very strong emotions, joy and celebration, sorrow and weeping, fury and anger. I think he was somewhat overwhelmed with his assignment from God. He had a job to do. He knew it well. He'd read the scriptures. He knew from Psalms 22 and Isaiah uh, how uh, the Messiah was going to be treated. He was well familiar with all the verses, and he knew what to expect. That's why he didn't bother to say anything. He didn't defend himself. He, he was a lamb of God. It says, like, led to the slaughter. It wouldn't, didn't say a word because what's the point? Like, <laughs> you're going to do what you're going to do regardless. And uh, he had a job to take away the sins of the world. The Passover celebration he was about to celebrate would not pass over him. He would be the sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. 